0: This is a People First Radio podcast. A group of housing providers are saying we need to tweak some of our systems and attitudes around supportive housing. In a column that appeared in the Victoria Times Colonist last month, they called for changes to the Residential Tenancy Act and identified a tendency towards firefighting rather than systemic investments in solutions. The column came from the CEOs and executive directors of four different groups that provide housing, the Aboriginal Coalition to End Homelessness Society, Our Place Society, the Victoria Kool-Aid Society, and Pacifica Housing. Two of those CEOs, Kathy Stinson of the Victoria Kool-Aid Society and Carolina Ibarra of Pacifica Housing, join me to share more on these issues. Carolina, what prompted you to reach out to the public like that?
1: The group of supportive housing providers has been meeting monthly for just over a year now just to you know share best practices and discuss our challenges. And one of the things we've been discussing is just how supportive housing in particular and homelessness is viewed in the community and all the different voices and criticisms, concerns. And we just wanted to make sure that we brought our voice uh, to the table as well.
0: And so before we get into discussing what some of those concerns may be, uh, I think it's important we we define for people what exactly we're talking about when we say supportive housing. In the column, uh, you wrote that supportive housing began as a response to a range of support needs. It now serves a very specific demographic of people who require the lowest barrier housing and supports. Kathy, could you maybe explain a bit more about what we mean when we say supportive housing and what it looks like?
2: Sure. So supportive housing, I would say, has has gone through a shift in in the last few years, and particularly uh, just before the, the pandemic, maybe starting back with the opioid crisis, what was then defined as the opioid crisis and now is referenced as a drug poisoning crisis, um, you know, so so I would say for the last maybe seven to eight years, it's been shifting towards uh, working with with folks with with really critical challenges. so so folks that have uh, mental illness that have substance use challenges uh, that have been chronically homeless, so maybe they' get housed for a little while, but they're not able to keep that housing. And so they cycle through the shelter system. And um part part of that's driven by the lack of housing. There simply just isn't enough housing out there. And so really making sure that the supportive housing that was available was going to the to the people with the highest needs. So really a, a triage system for those that that are that are most challenged. And Caroline, I don't know if you
1: would add to that. Yeah, I agree with Kathy. It's basically people with a history of chronic homelessness, mental health, addiction issues. And more and more people with some complex physical challenges as well. And so uh, we have still less and less some sites that are very lightly staffed. And we used to hear, oh, well, it's really important to have those uh, light supports for people who are almost ready for independent living. Um, When realistically, we can support them in the private market, the people who need supportive housing need supportive housing, need pretty intensive support.
0: Yeah, you also wrote that over the past several years, the complexity of needs of our clients has grown. Uh, Could either of you just expand maybe a bit more on that point?
2: Yeah, I, I can start. And I think it's it's really this this narrowing of the of the definition of, of who who is able to get into supportive housing. So it used to be that people with a range of support needs from, from very very minor uh to severe would be living in in supportive housing. But because of the the lack of housing and because that uh, there's more and more people that seem to have challenges, and that's a result of many things, a lot of systemic issues that that have, have grown over the years. Now we're talking about people that, that have you know, chronic substance use issues, um, untreated uh, illness, more, more physical issues as well. And perhaps I've lost the thread of the original question. So, Carolyn, you want to jump in there?
1: I'm relatively new to the supportive housing space uh, compared to Kathy. I came from affordable housing, independent living. And so I don't have quite as much of the historical context. But from our staff, both in Victoria and Anaimo, I I am hearing that that they did more regularly have people who just needed some light supports. But that right now, just the the compounding issues that they're facing uh, is really noticeable, just that everyone coming through the door needs quite significant supports. And and the, the, the thing that I've been hearing more and more is the physical disabilities as well. So a lot of challenges with mobility and other just health issues Uh, So it is it is much more complex in general.
0: And we've heard over the past year the idea of a new model of specifically complex care being rolled out across the province. Could you maybe provide some context on what the intersection is, how supportive housing is different from complex care? Is it the same thing?
2: I th- I think um, you know su- supportive housing providers believe that complex care really is just very um, well resourced supportive housing, right? It's 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 supportive housing that has all of the um, of the attending supports that that you need to to really give people that that have those chronic issues, those long standing issues. Uh, an opportunity to kind of work work through them. So well-staffed, well-connected to to both um, primary health care, mental health care, trauma recovery, uh, substance use recovery programs, all of the gamut of things that, that people need to move beyond uh, what brings them to supportive housing in the first place.
1: Agreed. Uh, I mean, we have some sites that one would say are like complex care, even there, they're not part of the program. Uh, like Nikeo and Nanaimo, we have physicians and nurses that visit. our. It's fully staffed. Our staff people to those resources. Um, so it really is a lot more intensive than some of the other sites that have less resources. And I don't know that complex care has really been defined in BC, There's some funding that's been allocated, and I know the different health authorities are trying to still roll out what that means, and it's different across the board. Um, But there hasn't been housing attached to that funding. I think in the new round, there might be. So it's hard. It's a very gray area, but I I agree with Kathy. I think most, most of us feel that complex care really is properly resourced supportive housing.
0: In the column, you also wrote that we need a legal regulatory structure that's adequate for the service provided and said that the Residential Tenancy Act doesn't provide that. Uh, What's missing from our framework when it comes to, to effective supportive housing?
2: So you know the the R T A is really geared towards um, people that that can live independently, that that are 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 fully functional, and and understand that they're both their rights and their responsibilities um, through, through uh, the the act. And I think that the challenge is that, that many of the folks coming into supportive housing need a, a lot of additional support and don't really understand the, the complexities of what's required of them to, to maintain a tenancy in a in a you know a, a private market landlord situation. So so they would not be able to, to compete in that private market. And but yet right now within the um supportive housing framework, um there's still a requirement that that supportive housing providers follow that rta and so it's really challenging to support um your tenants when when part of the rta requires that you you know you be a good neighbor that 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 you don't disturb the neighbor beside you and and so there's a lot of negotiating that goes on in supportive housing about how to how to balance the the rights of of different residents within within a building
1: Yeah, I would uh, just add to that, that in the same context, it just doesn't offer flexibility kind of fails everyone. So the residents do have very little rights under program agreements, which is what um, our operating agreements typically say we have to enter into with the resident in terms of being able to do evictions very quickly. There's not like, a huge process and if they have to go to the residential tenancy branch a lot of our residents just don't have the capacity to prepare to defend themselves so in that sense it's failing them quite significantly and then on the other hand for providers because supportive housing does work with a population that's uh, a lot more vulnerable and facing different challenges and maybe haven't had a history of knowing what healthy relationships are let alone tenancies um, we need to be able to be flexible. And that might mean, as uh, some providers um, mentioned in a recent workshop we have, you know, temporarily relocating someone just to change space and before they come back so that they can, you know, settle or regulate. Or sometimes we do need to be able to remove someone from a site when they're not suited to it in terms of uh, behavior such as violence in order to, to protect the rest of the community. And the RTB does not allow us to do that quickly. We need to go through a very long process. So we need something that balances things better in the sense that the, the residents of supportive housing have can have their rights protected. We can be flexible so that eviction is not our only option, but that if it comes to health and safety of our staff and other residents, that we are able to act. And at this moment, the, the Residential Tenancy Act does not Not really solve any of that
0: so in a case where where someone is evicted from supportive housing what what happens
1: well there's there's a
2: range of things that that can happen certainly um eviction is always the last resort of any supportive housing provider and we've usually gone down many different paths before we we take that option unless there's some really um you know physical violence that, that occurs and we have to act more quickly. But we do work with, with our, our partner providers. Sometimes it's just a particular milieu within a building where, where the, 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 the individual can't get along with its neighbors, but might be able to get along in another building. And so we're able to have, have a transfer to a different supportive housing environment, Sometimes it means going back to the shelter system for, for a period of time. So, you know, we're fortunate at Kool-Aid that, that we operate a couple of different shelters and, and are able to, to make space with, within the shelter to, to accommodate an individual, an individual coming back to that situation.
0: In the column, you wrote that there's a hesitancy to make systematic investments in solutions while funds are lost on reactive, figurative and real firefighting. Could you give me some examples of what you're talking about there with the firefighting?
1: I think, you know, we know what works. And if we take Nikea, which is in Nanaimo as an example, where it started and where it is now is very different. So where it started, um, there was a rush to fill the building. The building wasn't um, finished when people started moving in. There were questions about how much staffing, whereas now we have a system, we have the infrastructure physical infrastructure for better or worse our our the building could use, could be much much better we've got the amount of staffing and we've got the healthcare and we know how that works but in some of the other sites there's this hesitancy to fund full, like full staffing uh we I, I hear i heard from another journalist you know everyone who says how much is enough staffing and nobody really knows but we do more or less know, you know, 24 2 staff, 24 um, seven for a certain amount of people provide security, provide supports. But sometimes that staffing or that funding won't occur until there is something bad happens the physical assault, violence. And then after that, the funding comes and it's not necessary. We could just avoid all of that and have better outcomes if the investment was done up front and the things that we know work. Same with the physical infrastructure. Sometimes fire systems, if we're going to go to the literal fires, need to be upgraded. Uh, And going through that process to get approval is long and painful unless there's a fire. And so and of course, by that point, whether it's after something bad happens in terms of um, violence or a fire or a wall starts to crumble, it's much more expensive to then replace it. But those are funds to fixing and replacing that are not going to just investing in, in the staffing up front and the maintenance and the proper fire systems. Does that make sense? It's like the, the money is spent either way. It's just either spent in doing things properly up front to ensure better outcomes and more safety, or it comes afterwards when much more money is required. And something negative has already occurred.
2: Yeah, and, and I could just elaborate on that a little. I mean, I, I think the you know the physical space is, is so important, um, and that's why when we, you know we we learn something new every time we open a new building, and and we know how, how buildings should be put together for for optimum results. I mean, you need staff right at the front door. You need a double door system to prevent unwanted uh, guests from from getting into the building you know the the budgeting system that that we work within is fairly archaic i mean bc housing has always had this system of manageable versus non manageable costs and things like maintenance have always been on that manageable side, but with the change in, in acuity of, of the of the people that, that we're serving, um, maintenance is a huge ongoing issue for service providers. Uh tenants are really hard on their units. And um you know it, when there's turnover of a unit, basically a unit probably has to be redone way more often than it would be in the private market. And, and so recognizing that those ongoing maintenance costs just need to be be there in order to keep the building in really good shape and, and make sure that you're providing that that quality space for for individuals. If you're if you're trying to help someone get to a better place, then, then they need to be moving into a unit that that is, you know, something that that you would be proud to to live in if, if it was your unit moving, moving into.
0: You also wrote that there's a lot of good work happening and many examples of phenomenal success, but we seem to focus on what is not working. Could you share with me maybe what some of those those successful examples are?
1: I think we all do, but I'll jump in uh, with some of ours. So in, in Victoria, we have a site called Camus Gardens, which is purpose-built, fully staffed. And it's a beautiful site. People visit it, and they usually can't believe that that is where we house the highest acuity people in our portfolio. And the people are, are successful usually. Um, until they're they're much older, so we've got even an aging population living there. It's the same with Uplands Walk in Nanaimo, purpose built. A lot of some of our residents are what we would consider consider seniors in that population, and it has its challenges, like any site or any program where uh, where we serve people that are vulnerable and have mental health and addiction issues, among other challenges. But overall, there's a very tight-knit community. The community, including the residents and the staff, maintain the building through they do they have a cleaning program. So it is like the poster of what supportive housing is supposed to be, in my opinion. Nikeo has come a long way. And and I'm always incredibly inspired and and impressed. That's the site modular site on Labview, which uh, I always tell everyone that I'm horrified and inspired. And I never thought I could feel that way in, in the same sentence, in the same space. But I'm inspired by the staff and the residents and the challenges they've been through. I mean, some people are homeless, like eight to 15 years before they get there. And they stabilize in that environment. The only thing holding us back there is the the built environment, that the buildings are not good for supporting um, that population. But those are all really great successes. People who we've heard say that person is unhousable, they cannot be in that environment. They come in and they stabilize and they begin to thrive. Uh, and and the fact that there's so many different types, where we can move people to something that's a better fit, um, is something that I wish that was spoken about a little bit more. Because it is it's it's a testament to the resilience of our residents, to the huge effort and expertise of our staff, and just things can work out well even in difficult situations. So, sorry, I'll turn it over to Kathy. I'm very passionate about that. But-
2: Yeah, I mean, Kool-Aid's been operating supportive housing for, well, Gosh! Since 1991, we opened our first building, and you know we have some tenants in some of our older buildings that that are that are still there from 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 the beginning. Uh, they came in, and maybe they had a had a mental illness, but they're on medication and they're able to to keep that illness under control. Uh, but they're still living at, at that poverty poverty line level, and so that so they need that ongoing support just to make sure that they they stay stable. But we've had other other folks that um, have come into. to supportive housing they they've been stabilized they they get connected to the medical supports that they need or the recovery supports that they need and we've been able to to help them move on to to market housing sometimes with a subsidy and, and sometimes without you know people have have uh, moved on to employment and full lives you know we've had stories of people that have been in supportive housing and have gone on to 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 get their lives stable to to marry to have children we hear from those folks every now and then so you know there's lots of good stories that 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 come out of supportive housing and there's the ability now with with some other programs opening up where where uh shelter rate uh rental rental opportunities are available uh in buildings where where no supports are are, are offered where people that that have been stabilized uh, but still require that that deep subsidy can can move and thrive and so those stories are happening all all the time but but you you know the media tends to focus on the more sensational ones where you know Vic, Vic PD gets involved because somebody's violent within a building or something like that and so that's that's the challenge that that the good stories stay kind of hidden away.
1: Kathy, you may not know this, but I recently met a resident who was at one point at at the shelter at Rock Bay Landing that just moved into one of our newer independent uh, living buildings, and they're doing fantastic and. Uh, Yeah, those are those are the not everyone has that particular outcome, but they do happen and they happen fairly often.
0: So if there are people out there who aren't really connected to the supportive housing world and maybe are either skeptical of, say, having a supportive housing building in their neighborhood or maybe are skeptical about some of the things they hear about, maybe some of the behind the scenes work going on. In, in the supportive housing bureaucracy, what what message would you like to communicate to them?
2: Well, I would, I would encourage them to come and speak to any one of the supportive housing providers. Um, you know, we, we offer tours through our buildings at, at various times. Um, we have uh, residents who are happy to speak as ambassadors um, who, who are thriving within supportive housing. Uh, we have neighbors that um, appreciate us and are willing to speak out as well. So, you know, I think there's there, there the stories are, are, are there. Um, it's about how, how, how to how to seek them out. And I mean, I think one of the one of the challenges with some of the stories in the media is, you know, it, that um, if if a former resident is speaking out about an experience, we can't really speak. To that ourselves we're we're bound by confidentiality and so we we can't necessarily give the the other side of a story uh, even though there there often is another side to a story
1: i uh, echo what uh kathy says uh, we are starting to do um barbecues and events at our sites where we invite the community so i, I would encourage people to actually join us and Meet us, uh, as in the providers, the staff and, and the residents to get a better sense and and do ask questions, reach out, ask questions uh, and give feedback because we're always willing to work with, with the neighbors to try um, and address any concerns. And what I I do, I say to the public is when there's new supportive housing coming potentially to your neighborhood, rather than being concerned about there being supportive housing, ask and advocate that it has proper staffing and resources that really and the proper building that really is what will make the difference it's not whether it's a supportive housing site or not it's that it's properly resourced and i think every single operator um, agrees with that and uh, and would welcome that from the community because we are we are in the same boat we want these programs to work in every neighborhood so we can house the people who need us so much.
0: Is there anything else either of you would like to bring to the conversation today?
1: Uh, the only thing
2: I would add is that Kool Aid has has a, a, um, an email address, neighborfeedback at Kool-Aid.org. So if if any neighbors ever concerned about any of our buildings, you know what what's happening around them, um, you know they're they're welcome to to connect that way. Uh, we try and post phone numbers for each of our building in so that people that are in the local neighborhood uh, can contact the the building staff directly to to have some kind of in the moment kind of support. Um, yeah, but but I would just would would um, you know echo Carolina. We're we're always open to to questions to feedback. Um, yeah,
1: our email address at Pacifica for community feedback is community feedback at Pacificahousing.ca for anybody who wants to uh, to reach out. And uh, just thank you for for taking the time to ask us
0: uh, all these questions. Yeah, appreciate it. Carolina, Kathy, thank you both very much for making some time. Kathy Stinson is the CEO of the Victoria Kool-Aid Society. Carolina Ibarra is the CEO of Pacifica Housing.
1: People First Radio, People First Media, and People First Stories are community media projects of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society and are produced in Nanaimo, British Columbia. The opinions expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society or its broadcast, podcast, and social media partners.